Ready? Five, four, three. You're ready to go, Mark. Yeah, I got it. Thanks. Two, one, and action. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Risking Failure. <laughs> no, I can't do all that. What a tool. No, we have to keep going. Half our listeners have like swerved up the oh, no, I'll do it again. I'll do it again. Like, come at them at 100 miles. Uh, I'll, do, I'll, do, I'll do it again. Okay. Okay, you ready to go? Yeah, we're ready to go. Yep, five, four. Okay, you ready to go, Mark? I've got it. Yeah, no, two, one, and we're live. Hello, welcome to Risking Failure. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you're an old listener, it's good to have you back, but we like our new listeners more because they're sort of a novelty, you know? You old listeners, you know, it's been good to have you around for a little while and similarly good to have you around. You know, you get a little bit over it. Someone who's been around for a long time and I sometimes get a little bit over is my good friend Mick Dunn who's on the other side of the planet. Mick, how are you, mate? I'm very good, buddy. Very mate, good Mate, I still indeed. love you. I you st- do? I do love you. If, if, you've, if you're a regular listener, guys, you would have heard us say before, all friends fit into one of three categories, for a season, a reason, or a lifetime. And Mick, I think you might be making the lifetime category. You are the wind beneath my wings, Dolo. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, Mick, we promised that we would discuss the less jovial topic of loneliness. That was what we we sort of pondered it and thought, you know what, we need to give that some time and think about it. And I actually know that we both actually sometimes with these topics have to go and speak to loved ones before we record it because we go, I might say this and I don't want to upset you. You know, like it's pretty tough. Like I'm not married, but you're married. So you probably had to go to Liz and say, Liz, I'm just going to talk about loneliness. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm lonely. <laughs> did you have to do that? We did have a good chat about it, but not for permission reasons. But yes, sure. Right. Whatever, Mick. Yeah. No, don't have to explain to us. Yep. Go on. Anyway, the, um, it's funny though, because I was thinking about doing this subject this week and I was like, oh, yeah, we always kind of start with a little bit of a funny sort of tone or we try to. It was like, is it going to be appropriate to do that this week? Do we have to be like all serious? Like, do we have to, well, we can just do whatever we want anyway. We always do. But anyway, here we are. It just sort of resolved itself and we're into the topic of loneliness. And <laughs> you just talked about how we got here. That's great. <laughs> That's a great opening story. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. I sat down with Liz and we talked a little bit about it. Um, and I guess we can kind of go into that in more detail in, in, in terms of sharing a bit of uh, just more confirming observations than anything else. We're not sort of like digging into like the pits of loneliness rather than kind of exploring it a little bit from the, the perspective that it exists in many facets of life, from business to marriage, relationships to school or just wherever there's community. And non-existence of community, I guess. There's a um a website called uh, fml.com, fuckmylife.com. Okay? <laughs> um, I just didn't know how to say it, and I was like, "Well, hang on, I, don't, I think we're allowed to say that." Anyway, it's funny because people post things that are really horrific about you know my life went bad, and some people they've got a false sense of what's really bad. But I saw one girl write one time, a cute guy I've liked for ages walked past me today and slapped my ass. I farted. FML, right? And, you know, another parent wrote down something like, I got a call from the school today because when I packed lunch, I'd actually given my child a can of Bud Light. And so, these are these are random things that people post. They've gone, something that went really wrong. And there's some funny stuff on there, but there's also some stuff that makes you, that, you know, you're just whining. You know, some people are just whiny about their life. But one got really got me and it just said, um, it's my birthday today and there's not one person that 
will call me or text me or celebrate it with me. And I was like, whoa, like that sucks. And like even on a bad day in my life, I have somebody. And I think, like I had an experience a few years ago. I broke up with my girlfriend five years ago I'm on out. The day before my birthday, I think it was. Or it might be the day after. It doesn't really matter. But I was distraught because it went through a period where all my friends went and lived overseas or they changed jobs. And I suddenly felt like I had zero social network. And my parents were dropping over by chance. And I just burst into tears. And because not only had I just broken up, but I was also said, guys, when I wake up tomorrow, if I don't wake up, it doesn't matter. No one will know because I work for myself. And so I, I felt like I just lost my partner and I, all my friends, like, you, and you know, half these people, like, you know, Mick, like Damon moved overseas, Adrian moved away, James moved away. Yeah. I remember talking to you one day years ago. We just had a random Skype call one day and you did say something along those lines. It's like, oh, I'm going through, you know, you weren't like emotional about it, but you're like, oh, I'm just going through this patch where I'm realizing that. On some days, I could just not get up in the morning and no one would know. Yeah, that's, and that's tough. Now, working for yourself exaggerates the opportunity for that, I guess. So, sometimes, like, if, you know, I can not wake up in the morning, or if I could sleep in, for example, and it wouldn't wouldn't matter. But, you know, when you're in such a good space in your, in your life, you're like, you do wake up and you go do things and it doesn't matter that there's no one there. But when you are flat, when you've taken a hit – when you don't feel like you're involved in the community or you just just life. I think and that's when it gets really exaggerated. You look around and you go, well, who's who's there for me or who knows that I exist? And I think that loneliness is a lot about, you know, the whole like cuz I never I'm not I'm not uncomfortable being alone. And as a matter of fact, it wasn't until probably that period of time where I never actually ever where I reckon I felt loneliness. I might be wrong or maybe just not labeled it like that. But, you know, sometimes in life it doesn't matter that no one's there. Like, it just doesn't matter because you're in a good space. But when you're in a bad space, it's it's pretty punishing. But when I heard that this girl, I presumed it was a girl the way this text was written years ago, you didn't have anybody in her life. I was, I was like that, you know, even on a bad day, my life's great. When I moved to Florida and I was living on my own, it was the first time I'd moved away from home. And I moved to the other world as well and had no friends or anything just had a job that I went into and so I moved into an apartment had no furniture and it was a pretty big wake-up call it wasn't like scratching to get by whatever I had a great opportunity everything was sort of going well but I was actually trying to figure out just how many routes I wanted to set down in this place so I found myself reluctant to even buy furniture because I was like well the more stuff I get then I'm going to be really implanted here. And I wasn't convinced it was the spot for me yet. And that wasn't by intention. It was just what was happening. I was just noticing that I wasn't accumulating anything. I barely had anything. I would often find, and this isn't really in relation to you know, the girl you're talking about earlier, but I did find that there's like certain times, <laughs> the closer that I got to the weekend, the more difficult it became. So it was totally fine with being on my own midweek. So I go to work, come home, do my thing, like go for a run, do all this other stuff to feed my brain and my soul. And then I'd hit the weekend and it, it was more just like what you said earlier, when you're ready for that and it's not there, 
that I really noticed it. So it was, it, it was like I began to hate Fridays because it meant that at the end of Friday, I had to deal with the fact that I was just going home and to an apartment and probably going to do the same thing I did on Monday through Thursday night, just go for a run around the lake and listen to some music or whatever, like just maybe try to drive somewhere. And I used to find I spent a lot of time at like borders. I would just go to places where there were people where it was like safe to just sit down and surround myself with people and just read and just feel like I was connected in some way, even though I wasn't talking to anybody. And somehow in my mind, I just thought that I'd just run into people there, but you know, it was a very social place. It was this really difficult situation of like, well, I can't go out to bars or go out to places because I've got nobody to go with. That would just be really weird to show up at bars and be randomly talking to strangers on my own. It's like, it's not something I do. Some people do have that capacity though, don't they? Like they actually can go to a bar on their own. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I like what you're saying about like borders. I used to do the same thing on a Saturday night. If I had no one to hang out with, I'd go to borders and I used to love it. And then borders gone under and I don't have that space anymore. <laughs> So I just read in my lounge room. <laughs> <laughs> and try to sell yourself a coffee. Yeah. So you mentioned something there, actually, that was interesting about some people have the capacity to do that. And, and that's interesting because now that you say that, I used to beat myself up about the fact that I didn't. It was like I felt like it was my own. Uh, I'd created this situation and that I wasn't doing enough to address it. I felt weak. I was like, oh, you idiot. You know, you, you just don't have the guts to go out and just hang out with people and just meet new people. But the challenge is, though, and you're sort of right, but you can't solve it now because you, it's just say it's, um, I don't know, just say it's eight o'clock on a Saturday night and you've got that angst in you and you go, I should be going out. Well, you're now not in the right mood that would allow it to work anyway. And a lot of these things need to get solved a little bit earlier. And that, like, because I've been there as well, where I'm like, that's not the mood. Because anytime you interact with someone, it comes from a a fear or blame or an angst. But also, we don't necessarily have the skill set to do that. And it was interesting because I was teaching a skill set relevant to this this week, which I don't want to go down a strategy line straight away. We're not even there. But my, my point was that. Just when you said, you know, like, um, you know, oh, that's not, the, I'm not the kind of person to do that. We've got to be really careful when we find ourselves in a lonely spot. As soon as we say, I'm not the kind of person to do that, and we've all been guilty, of, we're all guilty of it. We've got to actually look at that thing and go, well, hang on, could I learn a different skill? Because if I if I could solve that, there would open doors. And I'll never forget, as a kid, my mate Bill came and lived with us for a while, and he wanted to go out on a Friday or Saturday night, and I couldn't be bothered. And he goes, well, I'm going. I'm like, well, where are you going to go? He goes, I don't know. And he was an English guy. And in English, they socialized differently and he had a bit of a nature for it. And he went out and he went out all night and met a whole lot of people and stayed out and then went hung out with them the next week. And he obviously just had a different skill set. He knew what to do. He felt comfortable with it. He was prepared to be vulnerable. He also knew what to say and how to interact and had a different skill set. And so during this week, by chance, I was actually pointing that out to this little workshop I was running to some people going, well, what we've actually got to do is observe how we respond to certain emotions and what we do and can we learn a different skill set there instead. And one of these girls in this workshop was saying that she had a function that she could go to but no one else was going to go and it was an industry function. And she said, "Um, so I I just won't go. And I said, well, 
why? And she's like, well, I'd be so uncomfortable. I said, we've got to look at how we respond to the fear at that point and go, could we respond a different way? And like, for example, when I go at a space like that and I don't know anyone, happens all the time, I said, I've learnt to go up to any random person, just say hello, not awkward, like there's ways to do it, but say hello, say something nice, go, oh, I love your suit or it's a great dress, I like those earrings and, and, then, and then just leave. Uh, or, or ask them a question. So I'd be like, great earrings, where'd you get them from? Or like your suit, you know, geez, you carry that well. You must, you, you, you still, are you a rower or are you a swimmer? And I'll ask them a question, like even if they're not, and they'll go, yes or no, bit of a chat and go, oh yeah. And I go, look, I'm waiting for some people. They're not here yet, but um, anyway, I might catch you later in the evening. And I'll go and do that to three or four environments. And when they know you leave, they're happy to talk to you next time. And then 20 minutes later, I'll go back and say, hey, you know, my friends didn't rock up. And usually people are very welcoming off the back of that. Now, I'm not saying that as this, look, guys, everyone learned this skill. I just want to, you know, I think when we have this conversation, I've learned myself, there are some areas where I just don't have the skill and therefore the situation I'm in sometimes is just, is due to me going, I am this kind of person and not finding my way out or, or getting the strategy where it's already crisis mode, you know, where it's already eight o'clock at night and you can't really call around and go, who's around to hang out with? I just feel like there's these opportunities that we sometimes get adamant, but, but that's not me and, and it could be if we get onto it early and also if we're open to it and we're prepared to take some risks. Well, I definitely agree with that in terms of what you're saying. Um, do you think loneliness is an emotion? Uh, the reason I asked this is when I was listening to Brene Brown, and she was talking about hope and the research that she'd done and looked into research of others and found that um, hope is not an emotion. But the way she defined it was that hope is a function of struggle. It's connected to how much struggle you go through. And she was, the reason she was talking about that was in relation to kids or you know, whatever. But just the example she gave was kids that get stuff too easily now and we're not letting our kids go through enough struggle to experience what it takes to get over the line on something. And therefore, our kids end up, our generations have less hope because they have less capacity to you know, move through struggle. And so it caused me to start wondering whether loneliness is an emotion or is it actually the, I don't know if the right words, a function of something. And I wondered whether really it's a function of connectedness, meaning you can't experience connectedness without experience, genuinely experiencing and learning how to move through loneliness. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Look, I think when I feel lonely- Sorry, Mr. Dobson, but- <laughs> What? Sorry, Mr. Dobson, what do you mean? <laughs> Just saying sorry to your dad. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? New listeners, my dad always says, you guys always say, does that make sense? <laughs> and he goes, my like, yeah, dad, because we're trying to work it out. Like, I know when I experience loneliness, it's like a brick in my chest. Like, it's heavy and it's deep and it's intense. And I know that- for some people, I am intense. I'm not intense like when they say, do you want to go to a movie? I'm like, yes, yes, I do. Like, not <laughs> like, but intense is in the, the things that I experience are, I experience emotions intensely. Now, I'm not saying that the, everyone else does or doesn't. Oh, I've got no idea. This is normal for me. But I do wonder sometimes if we want to, we try to protect ourselves from our loneliness and from a love the polar opposite of that because the risk involved with love or the openness that's involved by keeping things in check. And sometimes we keep our loneliness in check by staying busy or by having a drink or um, 
hooking up with somebody random or flirting with somebody who's not our partner, who's not our husband or wife. And it adds a little excitement. It means that we don't actually, it sort of pops us off. It's like having, you know, you're all tired, so you have another cup of coffee. Um, and I also think sometimes with love, I wonder if we're so scared of, of that somebody would actually love us and what that would might feel like. It's so daunting that we cut it off at the past. We cut off kindness at the past. I know that a number of times I'll be nice to someone and they'll, like I'll say to someone, God, you look, you look fantastic. And I go, no, no, I don't. And I won't be a smart ass about it, but at an appropriate time, I'll say, you know what? When I say that, it's really okay to say thanks. And, and I'm not trying to come and be the teacher, but like if I love someone and they go, I go, you look amazing. And they go, nah, they go, no, I don't. I'll be like, no, but I seriously see you like that. And if saying thanks would feel good to you, just say thanks and enjoy it. Like I see that I'm not, I'm not lying. Now I don't do that to someone on the street because that's someone can be, you know, okay, hey, you look really good. They go, no, I don't. I go, hey, it's okay. Just say thanks. Cause then you've been a smart ass, right? That's, that's, it's a poor social skill. But for the- well, I mean, I don't know. In, in some, I'm, we don't need to go down that track, but there's sometimes that that is like, that's what it takes is like the shocking yes, experience of that, that actually jolts somebody to say, wow, I guess I really do look good in this, sh- mm. you know, whatever shirt. I think it's separate about the act. You got, what do you got going in the background then? You got something like, you got, I don't know. I, you, you got some sorry. message. You got, you're so popular. Um, now that you're on Twitter, you're getting all these little tweets coming in. Um, <laughs> Look, I think that really it's not so much the word, it's the intent. Like if you're intent going, showing someone that, you know, they don't let people love them because they don't say thank you and your intent is one to show your superiority, then that's, you know, you can say the same words but have the wrong intent, doesn't feel good. But if you if you really care mm-hmm. about someone, and I think that's a difference, when you really care, you're like, no, you can say thanks, it's okay. And I've had to learn to do that too. Like one of the things I've learned to do is I – when an audience claps afterwards, I've learned to just appreciate it and let it in, which you wouldn't have thought you'd have to do. But I'm like, I'm like, oh, Mark, they're actually clapping. They they might actually have liked what you just said hmm. because you get so humdrum. So I think not humdrum. You get you scared. You're scared to go. Do you really like it? Do you really like me? Do you re- are you really giving me that feeling? And it's interesting in oh, what's his name Tim Ferriss's book on the four hour body when he talks about the orgasm and the female orgasm particularly. And he's saying that people who are not having orgasms in their sex life, the, the research that he was talking about said that, you know, these people often aren't even bringing themselves to orgasm in private. So the joy is not just a natural part of their life. And I wonder even with the thank you and the receiving love, if, if we're not doing that, if we're not open to the experience of love, in our own private moments, then perhaps we're not as available to receive it, you know, when someone says something nice. And I think that openness to love is often people get people go, well, hang on, isn't openness to love if that person loves me? I go, no, no, like you can love the toasted sandwich that you're having for lunch. You know, you can just, but you got to love outside your immediate world. Like you can walk down the street and you can love the plants and you can see two people walking down the street holding hands and, be, and celebrate that and smile and see the goodness in it. And I think love is something that, you know, I say it's cheesy, yes, but it's all around us. So I, I thought when I heard that stuff from Tim Ferriss, as much as listening to details about the f- female orgasm were just fascinating of their own accord, I was also thinking, geez, this really applies to everywhere. Is it, if it's a re- in your own private life, then it's almost developing a fitness or an availability for it to happen in other areas as well. Coming back to what I said earlier, it's something that needs to be in some way exercised a little bit to 
understand how it relates to other things. But I think just commonplace would be that it is an emotion, but I'm not, I don't actually, I've, I've never studied psychology, so I don't know what truly defines an emotion and what doesn't. But it did make me think about the fact that to experience connectedness, you really need to sort of have experienced, not just experienced loneliness. I think your level of connectedness is probably pretty closely correlated to how well you can sit in the face of loneliness. I, I don't know if that's a right turn or not. Do you know what I mean? Well, you, well, yeah. Like, I can't believe the shit that I say on pub, in public, but like I'm single and that in my measure is brave because I would prefer, you know, it's tricky because people could look at it anyway, but I'm telling you my view on it. Like I'm like, some people could say, oh, that's not brave because you're not taking the risk of being in a relationship. I'm like, no, it's brave because there's people that I could have gone on that journey with if I had have ignored a part of myself, if I had numbed it, if I had have just, if I had have been so scared, I'm like, oh, maybe I won't be with anyone. It's almost like I accept the danger or the risk of being lonely or alone so that I can self-actualize, so that I can have the highest experience of love. Now, that's there's risk in that. Like, that might be a, mm. a, a dumb bet. Like, that- it, it, Yeah, but more, pe- more people need to hear that, though, you know? Because people beat themselves up too much for being single. If, yeah. And look, and there's times when I don't beat myself up, but I wonder- but I tell you what's interesting when I meet other single people of varying ages, and it applies to everybody. But I'm just applying this, applying at the moment to single people. I often think that our capacity for connection, which is the opposite of loneliness that we're saying in this discussion, or at least that's what I think it is, it's like an octopus with its tentacles. And let's say a, a, an octopus is, you know, it's a huge one. It's in your house, and it one tentacle grabs onto a vase, and another tentacle grabs onto the window and another tentacle's sucked onto your desk and and you've got this big thing trying to pull it away. Well, it's got all these connections to things. But as a human, they're actually connected to other people or sources of safety. And so, but when we pull the tentacle off the window and we drag it off, it sort of flies around loose for a while, but just out of, just because the octopus wants to have some level of stability, it whacks it on something else. Now it's stuck to the TV. So, it's connecting, but in the process, all those tentacles aren't necessarily, there's none necessarily that's sitting spare to connect to something, say, healthier or, or, or better. And I find that with myself, I've had to watch this, and people who are long-term sort of look lonely or they don't feel connected to their population, I go, well, you do have tentacles, and right now you are connecting, but sometimes the octopus can connect them all to themselves. <laughs> and so we... We say we're open, but the truth is, as soon as there's an opportunity for connection, it's almost like we've got this habit of reconnecting, like getting loose, like the tentacle gets loose, and then we go, I want to connect it onto you, but too scared, I'm going to connect back to myself. Until this, the human experience is like the octopus, that all our connection comes back to ourself, and we're the only one that understands us. And nobody really gets me, and I just want time on my own, 
And the reason we want the time on our own is because we're not getting fueled somewhere else, but we're not necessarily being fully open in that relationship to some level of depth. And it's very tricky because you, you, I've seen people both in and out of relationships go and be in a conversation and they say they're there and they're available, but they're not. And and I know this because I've been guilty of it. I've completely connected with myself and as a response to not having anybody there that, say, understands me or that I feel like I belong to or cares about me. And as I've been single for a period of time and I see meet other people as single, um, it's very rare that I'll meet someone that's sort of saying, I'm single and I've got tentacles available. I could connect with you where a lot of them go, Oh yeah. Like, Oh my, you know, my niece is the joy in my life or my, um, all my sporting clubs, everything. And, Oh, you know, these are my best friends. And you, and you almost feel like there's no space in, in their life for you. But some people don't do that. Some people continue to be open and it's, it's really difficult as an adult, I think for all of us to go, how can I still be open, but still have connections in my life? Um, I'm sorry. It's a baby. That's so, it's something you always do something. As soon as I say something profound, something always happens like this, Mick. This is probably going to go on for a little while. That's all right. <laughs> um, look, I know I'm sort of spilling out a lot there, but I've got a few thoughts on this. And the other one was um, what I've also noticed is when we want to reconnect with somebody new, we actually have to take the connection away from someone else. And I've had that with friends say, they go, Mark, you know, I have spoken, haven't spoken to you for ages. And the truth is sometimes I, if I've got a new friend or a new business or a new client or a new partner, I connect there, but I have to surrender another connection. And I, I feel like if we're not prepared to surrender a connection and even deal with that we might upset someone else, we can't reconnect the new person. And I think it gets in the way of our connection and therefore creates a loneliness because we, we have to keep, you know, my cat needs me. I've got to hang out with my cat. And I'm like, well, I think your cat will be all right. Like, or no, I got to go see my parents again. I'm like, well, they're, they're not your responsibility. If it shouldn't be interrupting your, your social life, so I'm just saying these things. I think we create our own loneliness sometimes. I have. I'm totally been guilty of it. Mm, I think you're right there. We do create a, sort of easy excuses or escapes not to do something. I used to find that a little bit. If I went back to that experience that I had when I was in Florida. Sometimes I would have opportunities to go do, I mean, I, I definitely had a friendship circle, but I found myself comparing that friendship circle too much to back home and being in a new place and all of that. And it just, I just didn't have people that I'd known for a long time. So that we, we, I didn't, I didn't have deep enough connection. I had it with a couple of people, but interestingly, they were married. So we like hung out and had an absolute ball, like all, all of us together, but at the end of the day, it was sort of like, you know, we'd just all go back and it's not like we'd hang out the next day or anything. It wasn't an ongoing thing where I was used to being hanging out with friends or whatever and you just have a whole weekend of doing stuff sometimes. Sometimes I just didn't want to hang out with some of the people because I was like, I, I just can't do it this weekend. I just didn't want to. It was difficult for me because I couldn't, I didn't have an excuse. I didn't have family. I didn't have, I had nothing to do. And they knew that. So they'd be like, what else are you going to be doing? All right. I guess I'll just come out on the boat again this weekend and hang out and drink or whatever. And, 
and sometimes I was closing myself to those opportunities, but other times I was just it was just draining, and I just didn't want to do more of it because it actually felt like I was to do that meant that I was removing my opportunity to do what. I felt connected to, even though I didn't know what that would be. But I just knew that I wasn't going to be able to do that if I just kept doing the same stuff. Mm. See, Dr. John Gray's got a model, and I'm rusty on it, but he talks about having uh, nine love buckets or something and saying, you know, the first one is, oh, there's one for the love of self. There's one love in a romantic relationship. There's love from your mum. There's love from your dad. There's sibling love. There's friendship love. There's love for the dependent, like a pet or a child. And he said, once you get one bucket full, then you go to look look to fill another bucket. So you got your romantic love full and you got love between you and your mom and you and your dad. And then you go, oh, I should have a child or a pet. And you sort of, he says, once you fill one, you move on to the next one. And what you were talking about there is, is probably how that's playing out. Like you can love your friends, but you sort of OD on that level of love. You know, there's a party of, of us all that search, yeah, but I want to have a different kind of conversation, a different kind of relationship. And I know it's interesting, you know, my, my good friend Ryan, like he's been so busy with his five kids and all these huge businesses and everything. He's now allocating some time to hang out with friends and he's contacting me going, Mark, can we hang out? Like, <laughs> of course, Ryan, we hang out all the time. He goes, yeah, but like on a Saturday when he wouldn't normally be able to because he's now ticked off all these other ones that he's realized that during that journey, he's actually perhaps not had the same time allocated to his friends. And I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying he's a pretty open guy, but, you know, it's been interesting to see him just get the, the love buckets almost ticked off in a different order to me. Yeah, that's interesting. I, it reminds me of um, Rabbi Harold Kushner, I think it is, that wrote um, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Have you read that? I've heard that title. Awesome title. Mm. Yeah, go on. Pretty amazing book. Definitely read it. I mean, it's, it, he's a pretty interesting guy, but he in an interview that he had, I saw he was talking about in a somewhat unrelated topic that the importance of male to male relationships and that males don't intentionally create enough space to develop and have relationships with other males where they can let themselves be seen. And by not doing that, they increase the risk of that coming from male to female relationships. And that becomes problematic in marriage and moving further through life. And that he was talking about that being a, a major thing he's been observing and seeing, you know, through midlife and things like that. I think there's some real weight to that to kind of start to step out of this like single married thing that it begins to extend into other areas of life of this experience of loneliness. And I do think that no matter what stage of life I've been through, at least as long as I can ever remember, I always had periods of experiencing loneliness and still do. Interestingly, I don't feel it say when I'm working, even though most of the time I'm working on my own, and I don't know that when something, say, goes wrong or I have a failure at something to do with whatever work or some other pursuit, that doesn't feel like loneliness to me where I'm like, you know, at the risk of like the negative talk type stuff. It's much more related, I think, to satisfying the things that are, you know, I, I tend to find I'm more 
apt to identify with loneliness in sections of my life that aren't being developed or fulfilled. So even in like health or fitness, sometimes even if I'm not sure where or how to start with something, I can sometimes feel alone in that quest a little bit. Um, spirituality is a big one. I find that it's difficult to align with that sort of stuff in it's taken a, I've been on quite a long journey moving to the US and, and being exposed to different ways of thinking in the world of spirituality and having to kind of learn what people are actually thinking so I could understand how to be in relation to that and not being able to have the kind of conversations I'd really like to have with people because there's no community to step into to do that because I don't know how to create it because I haven't lived here. Like I've been, I, I grew up in Australia, right? So if I wanted to create that, at home, it'd be much more easy because I just sort of understand how to move through that. Whereas it's not so easy here because it's, it's hard to kind of find where it is in some places, you know, when you move into a new space, much the same as when you move into a new job and you're trying to get in the zone, but you're in a whole new community and it takes a very long time before you can kind of identify where that zone is that you fit and where you can shine. And that can be a really long and lonely kind of a road that you can still be, doesn't matter what your marital status is or any of that stuff. It just, it feels lonely. Yeah. Cause you're the only one with that sort of problem or that question. Yes. Like I did, yeah. talk, I did a talk this morning and this kid comes up after afterwards and he's in year 11 and he'd asked me a question during the presentation and he just burst into tears and he's talking to me because oh, I said to him, you know, he had something going on at home. I said, is it like this? And he said, yes. And it was the first time he felt understood. He's burst into tears. Like, this is a year 11 boy that didn't have an image that would suggest he would cry in public at all. And it's like he's just suddenly felt sane that somebody got, got how hard it was. Because I think that's the other thing is that if you do feel lonely, everyone gives you this crap advice well you know you've got to get out there you're like well, where the hell's there you know like not even relationship wise you've got to get out there you've got to go make friends you're like that's not how friends are made you know i'm sure and he's had experience where people go oh, don't worry about it just forget about it and he, he can't and i think as we're having this conversation too there'll be people that are in marriages that feel more lonely than when they were dating and there'll be there'll be kids in families that feel like they don't fit in with their family and they're completely alone. And there'll be people, you know, soldiers in war zones that are, they've got their, their colleagues there, but they just feel completely alone. Like, and. Well, I've often heard the exact, you know, I've seen mm, even the exact opposite yeah. now with like the military, there's such strong camaraderie. And then you know, they're on a deployment for whatever, a year or something, and then they come back to their their home. And that's becoming the biggest challenge for them is because they feel guilty about the fact that all they want to do is just go back again. And this comes down to this that octopus example is they've gone over there, they've got to survive, they've got to connect. It's like when you've got to eat. You go to the fridge, there's crap food there, you go, I've just got to eat, I'll eat it. And, you know, they've fundamentally had to connect with the people around them because it, there was nothing else available. And look, I'll always, you know, I used to love the TV show MASH. And for those people who don't remember it, you know, who are younger, like it was a show about they're in um, Vietnam 
and uh, Korea rather in Korea, and they were a mash unit. They were just a whole lot of soldiers and random people, nurses and med- or who were for- forced to go there, and they become best friends. And in the last episode, they've all got to go back, and they're suddenly going. We all we, all we wanted to do was go home. And now we're going home. We realize that we love these people so much that when we get home, no, when will I ever see you again? And back then there wasn't text messages and phone calls and Skype. And there's this, you know, this torment in their conversations. I may never see you again. We, we hung out every day for five years. And I think that's the, the octopus example. It's like, well, when you come home, how, how do we reconnect when that first connection, that first deep conversation with our loved one or our, old buddy from school, they can't understand what I saw in war or they can't understand how traumatic that was at work for me today or, or they can't understand yes. what, yeah. um, how upsetting it, you know, I was talking to my buddy, how upsetting it is with my, my wife at the moment and I'm struggling. And because they don't understand on that first conversation, we go straight back. It's easy to quickly go, oh, I'll go straight back to what, where I, I got the, the connection from before. And that's what I meant before about, you know, it's really rare to find someone that remains open and, and can have the courage to go, I've got a couple of connections, but I'm I'm still available for something new. And it's an attitude and an awareness and a courage, but also sometimes a skill set that, like, I think, a lot of people don't even know how to have a conversation that leads to connection. A lot of people just go, I'll have a beer together or we'll sleep together or play golf together, but they don't know how to have a conversation. And I observe that, that they don't know how to just say something honest. And I look at, you know, I don't know, I don't know shit about war, Mick. I don't know shit. Like I don't even, I don't know. I know I don't. I know a principle though that says I can't understand you until I, until you tell me something. And one of the great challenges is for soldiers, we hear all the, you know, when I studied, the research came through, it was like they just couldn't communicate it because it was so horrific. And even if they did communicate it, the other person couldn't conceive it. And the, the, the gap was so big. But we need to be able to have this ability to say something honest. And the war example is too extreme. But in our personal lives, we need to be able to come home and say, this is what happened at work and this is how it impacted me. Although if you just... Sometimes you can identify these things in the extremities, right? The things like suicide and the things like war and like these extreme emotions where I think perhaps the challenge there for the soldier that's experiencing that, I wonder whether it has something to do with the fact that not only do they have connectedness, but they have a role and it feels like having purpose and it's, I've got to imagine it's got to be incredibly difficult to just come home and sort of dream of just wanting to be at home in a quiet place and mow the lawn and fold the laundry with your wife again and realize as you're doing that that you don't feel like you understand what your role is because your role is to be back there protecting the front line and I feel like sometimes that's where the, that, that loneliness sometimes comes is in those places where we don't know what our role is and we're trying to figure it out. Or like you said earlier, it's, it seems to be in a lot of those moments when you're actually holding something that you just can't imagine how you would vocalize it and have it make any sense. Like when I was having sort of a period of feeling disconnected from 
all of my friends back home that I've moved away from and in these entire new set of friends, they're all great people. But it's not like I could ever like just be in the middle of hanging out with them and be sort of down and somebody be like, oh, you're right. And for me to like speak the truth of like, yeah, none of you people understand me or like that wasn't what I was thinking, but I was like just all these things I was like turning through my mind. Like, There's just no way I could bring that up. So it just became a lonely thing that I just worked through. And as much as I would try to find a place to talk about it, it was just very difficult to do that until I could talk to an old friend mm. or a family member and they get it. Right. And it's almost like um, a, it's almost like a valve. Like, when you talk to them and, you, and they feel understood, you feel better. And now you're in the mood to go out and be a little bit more open to those friends. But it's like if you're hungry, if you're busting to go to the toilet, you can't hear a word the other person's saying. You, you, you totally can't be present because you've got this other need. And, and one of the things that's very unattractive in people is need, when someone's needy. And if you're hearing this and you feel like this could be you – at first, it sounds crap because you go, yeah, my God, I am needy. I mean, I'm not attractive. And it's true, but there's an easy way out of it. But that <laughs> avoid us. Well, I don't mean to smash people, but I, like I've been this person. I've, I've been it. And it's such an unattractive quality. But I didn't know what to do instead. Like, I'd be like, it, it's, it's a little bit like when someone's drowning. The first thing you learn about when you try to rescue someone's drowning is that they're going to grab onto you and they're going to bring you down. So, you've got to learn how to push them away quickly. And I found that when I was needy, I'd go to someone and go, can you help me? You know, I'm, I'm so down, I'm so flat and, and you know, not like the words, but some variation of that. You can hear in the tone of voice, like there's, a, there's just this quiet desperation in you. And people can be polite for a while, but then they just get over it. And then we go, see, nobody really cares. But what I learned was when I was needy, there was two ways it could happen. One you could talk to someone who really gets it and you go, man, I need this or, you know, I need a hug or, man, I just could do with a thousand bucks right now or, man, I'm busting for a piss. And then somebody helps and you understand and it's a valve and then you can be more present. Or the other one I've noticed, and I've said this on another show, was, well, if I'm needy, someone else probably out there is too. And if I can find them and help them and make them feel loved or that they exist or that they're important, then I'll get that feeling in return. And you've heard me say before, you know, if you give a kid 50 cents, you feel rich. If the kid gives you 50 cents, you don't feel rich and you feel like you just stole the kid's money. So, in actual fact, we think we need, but what we actually need is to give that emotion to someone else. So, I've started to realize that if I'm feeling down or flat or needy or lonely, I'm like, well, who else is feeling like this? Maybe I should just touch base with them and go, hey, how you doing? You exist. And that changed the whole game. That changed the whole game for me is to move out of need and move into contribution. Yeah. But how, how do you do that without kind of creating the needy club? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, but it I- doesn't become a, like, you don't get together and go, oh, do you need to? Let's both need together. <laughs> it's actually that you, because you, you don't do it out of a. Yeah, I know what you're talking it's about. Out of, it's a, it's yeah. a contribution. It's a, it's literally texting someone and going, and sometimes we don't know who to text. I'm like, well, everyone's got a phone number in their phone. Like, you, you, everyone's got more than your mum's name in there or your dad's name or something, right? You've got somebody. And it's as simple as texting and saying to them, even if it's a work colleague, going, hey, listen, I was just thinking, I never tell you, you're a rock star. I hope you're doing well tonight. You know, I hope you're in a good space. I hope you're having a good weekend. 
And when you do that, they're like, oh, wow, thanks. And then they've got a warm feeling towards you and then they want to interact a bit more. But if you're doing it so that you get that, like, then you text again and go, yeah, don't worry. You don't have to text back. It's fine. Like, I understand you're really busy. <laughs> like, oh, like, it's got to be a genuine care for the other person. Yeah. Because I think that I've learned that sometimes when I've been lonely, I really am sincerely lonely and there's a whole lot of things missing and there's not connection and it's a, a moment in life that is not, it's just the nature of the situation. I didn't do anything to create it. It's just an experience of life. There's other times though when it's a little bit self-induced through to poor decisions, which is me worried about myself, not someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't say it's a black and white solution. And if you're out there and listen to this and you're on meds and your whole life's bad and everything, I'm like, okay, get some help, talk to some people. But if you're just in that category where you go, yeah, I get a bit down sometimes. Like I'm like, my strategy has been, can I make someone else's life a bit better? That's interesting when, to kind of revert back to some of these extreme examples, I, I listened to a discussion on uh, that Krista Tippett on with on being had. I think it was quite from quite a few years ago with a suicide expert. This lady was saying, well, one thing that I took away that she was kind of talking about the issue of depression. She had found that some a piece of advice she had given to people that had been quite helpful to them when they were dealing with depression, like on a really significant, serious scale, it was often leading to suicidal stuff, where she was suggesting that they write a letter, when they're happy, write a letter to themselves for when they're depressed, saying, I'm happy right now, and here's why I'm happy, and please don't do anything to stop me from being able to experience this again. And she said, you know, it's like this nice gentle reminder to that, you know, this is temporary. And I, I realized as I listened to that, that, that there's actually some, I, I just think that applies across the board that sometimes we do forget that this is a temporary thing. And that's why it, I wondered whether it really is an emotion or if it's just part of a wave of, it, you know, just something that we need to experience in order to understand what connection really means. And and if we see it like a wave is something that passes through, to not always have that FML look at our life, like everything's so bad for me because it becomes our thing of significance, like everything's so bad for me, we try to compete with everyone and we we position ourselves in a way where we're not allowed to ever be happy. Because we're all, all our stories about how bad my life is. Where yeah, it's like the person that's like, remember that comedian that was overweight years ago in Australia, and then she lost weight, and everybody was like pissed at her because she was always like the comedian that was making fun of her weight, kind of like a you know Chris Farley or whatever of the Australian comedian circuit. And then all of a sudden, she slimmed way down, got fit, healthy, all of that good stuff, and the entire community just like seized on her of like you. And, and she was clearly saying, well, no, that's not how I'm getting my significance. Like, I'm still funny, but I don't need to be poking fun at myself for that reason. I can poke fun at myself for other reasons. And I think you're right because we do fall into that trap of finding significance in many things, including loneliness. And, th- and that that's probably the needy thing. But And including not having friends like, oh, yeah, nobody would have called me on the weekend. Or, oh, yeah, like I went to that gym class and then obviously I didn't fit in there. That instructor hated me. And, oh, yeah, well, all the teachers hate me. And 
we we go, where's that coming from? Like, like I remember that the time I talked about when you know I said to mum and dad, like nobody's going to wake, you know, when I wake up in the morning, no one's going to even know if I exist. And I was in a bad way, and mum was awesome. She's like, Can I, you know, love you, mum. She said, you know, what if we have breakfast with you in the morning? And I just stopped. I was like, that'd be great. <laughs> and I, that's what I needed, right? Like, so that wasn't me going. I want to be significant for being lonely. That was just I was distraught. But there's other times when I see people, they create this sort of cycle for themselves by what they want to be important for and what they, and it really comes from a space of insecurity. Like I'm not a good person. People probably don't like me. They're scared and they're hoping that they like, that you like them, but they'd sooner go, I know you hate me before. So they couldn't get rejected, but we need to be a little, that's where, that's where Brene Brown stuff on vulnerability is awesome. We need to be a little bit courageous. We need to be a little bit going, well, yeah, I'd love to hang out with you. Someone says, oh, do you want to come to the bar on the weekend? And it's okay to say, God, I'd feel a bit out of my comfort zone, but I'd love to try it for an hour or so and to take that personal courage but not lock ourselves into an identity. And I think the other thing that you said too about a letter I really liked, years and years ago there was this, this kid I was helping and and I could see that she was going through some bad stuff and she was turning to drugs and everything. And I, I said, look, I want you to write a letter to the three people you love the most, just tell them how awesome they are. And oh, my skill set wasn't the same, you know, wasn't as it is now, but it was fundamentally right. This worked. I, and I, and she was like, well, I don't really want to, what would I say? And she goes, we're not going to give it to them. I was like, no, we're not going to give it to them. I just want you to get clear on it so that if the opportunity ever comes up, you could communicate it to them. So we saw her a week later and she'd gotten right into it. And she goes, oh, actually, she'd written 21 letters. Now, this was a big deal because she'd written three and she goes, oh, I really should write something to someone else. And she wrote all these notes. That's what I would say. And I said, oh, can I? They, said, they look like a lot. They look heavy. Can I hold them? And she goes, yeah. And I was pretending to see how much they weighed with my hands. And I said, right, now we're going to send it to them. So I'd actually just stolen them from her effectively. <laughs> and I said, we're going we're we're to send them. She said, you said we wouldn't. I said, yeah, I lied. Um, we're going to. I said, just do one at a time. Anyway, so we, I talked to her and we sent them off one at a time and she was just so vulnerable at that point, so so nervous. But in the next few weeks, so much great emotion flooded back to her from people that she was just astounded. And, and she would come to me with a, her face looked different. She like, and she was lighting up. She goes, you know, you know what my mum said to me the other day? And and she goes, yeah, so-and-so wrote this letter for me. And she was just experiencing joy. In it. But it wasn't because she said, oh, you know, you don't love me. Prove it. It was a, I love you. And and when she sent that out, it came back. And, you know, when I was absolutely distraught and mum and dad had breakfast with me in the morning, I didn't have the capacity to do that at that time. I was really drowning, like I was struggling. But when I came around from it, I was aware I needed, if I could help other people with a similar experience, you know, when someone else broke up with their, their girlfriend, I was like, hey, mate, I've got some ideas for you. And I was able to contribute. I think the way, the most power we've got in this loneliness thing is to still give, as even that's against our instinct. You know, I know, I don't even presume to know what some people's lives are like. like they're like, they've lost a child and they've just got a hole in their heart they can't cope with or they've broken up with someone and they've just never gotten over it. Like, I don't know what that stuff's like. So maybe this is just not even remotely relevant for them. I've got no idea. That worked for that kid though. Well, I don't know what we want to talk about in part two because we haven't really planned this thing out, but. 
Well, I might let a few people of, of our circle listen to this one and get some feedback. And then maybe next week we'll come and continue it and and just keep exploring. Because I've got some more things that I reckon are worth talking about. Something I was just wondering whether we were starting to talk about a little bit was, and we haven't talked about on the, before, uh, I can't remember them, but there's sort of, the, the, I think there's six, seven human needs, like the motivate, like the underlying motivations that are behind everything that we're doing, you know, the need for significance and contribution and these sorts of things. I thought maybe that would be an interesting thing to discuss a little bit and explore. I thought also stuff about, hmm, yeah, just other facets of life, I guess, um, in relation to this topic. I think there's more more than what we've even just, just talked about so far. I think something is interesting is noting when how we respond to fear and how we respond to being vulnerable because I think we can get an unhealthy habit. Just like the example you used, you, where you said, oh, I wouldn't go to a bar on my own. And the girl in the workshop said, oh, I wouldn't go to that function. I'm a big one for saying, well, hang on, when you're scared, how are you responding? Because if you can find a better way to respond to fear, then you can open new doors. Um, so maybe we, we explore all that stuff next week. That's fine with me. And we just see what happens. Um, and I think the way we release these a week after we've recorded them, so it might be difficult if you've got questions on this, we may not quite get them. If you email them to us, we may not quite get them before we record the next episode. So if we have to do the questions in you know, a three-part series. Oh, my God, we're going to have a trilogy, Mick. Holy jeez, that's a first. Well, um, yeah, well, mm. it would be interesting to hear people's thoughts if we managed to get mm. people to do that. Yeah, well, it's good. Well, you know, weird topic, though, isn't it? Because even talking about it, my energy's going, ooh, down. Like, I got on, I was just laughing my ass off. <laughs> that's what I mean. <laughs> I know. It's it's, it's a like, buzzkill topic, but it's, a, it's massive. It's huge. Yeah. And if you do know someone's lonely, get them this, Let's, just so that they feel like you get them. That's all that I was thinking too. This is like a, I didn't want to like be trying to workshop it so much as just have it be a validation thing. That um, sometimes I don't think that surprisingly there's enough stuff out there that I think there's too much like positivity washing crap out there that just undermines the significance of how important this experience of loneliness is. And that's why I think we have that tendency to just punish ourselves for being lonely and not maybe value it. That's what I think yeah. would be interesting was to be, to be able to explore oh, that. Yeah. Like, yeah, because when I've been lonely, I've had to become more vulnerable to get help. And that's been really healthy. The moment I've admitted I can't handle this in my life, you know, my finances are like this, my love life's like, like this, my health's like that, my back's like that. For me, it's my back. You know, I, like when every time you, you've got this moment where you're just failing in an area and you have to volunteer that to someone, it, it's terrifying. But they're actually, they're not judging you there. They're actually loving you in response to that. And people go, oh, no, so-and-so does judge me. Well, they might be a dick, you know, like you got to pick your space. But I think this, I think that we live in a world where everyone's just trying to look perfect and we don't tell everybody 
that there's a part of our life that's crap. And we, and we also have this attitude that in the Western world, you know, we can fix everything. You take control of your life. You know, you, you're lonely. You go out there and fix it. You don't have enough money. You go out there and you make some. You know, you don't have the man of your dreams or women dreams. You go out there and you make it happen. And I just reckon that's all bullshit. And people are shocked to hear that because I'm the goals guy, you know, like come to me and we'll work out a strategy. I'm like, but all you can do, you can put yourself in the best position for things to go your way. But but at the end of the day, life has, there's something bigger that goes on. Like why well, you and I became friends, Mick, I didn't go out looking for a best friend on the other side of the world. It just played out. And I think that we've got to also be a little forgiving and say, this is part of the human experience. This is just part of being, the, this is, just part of being human and it's not permanent like you said before it'll pass and just forgive ourselves and just love ourselves a bit more mm. yeah it's necessary it is necessary mate well it's always and and always an epic pleasure and uh always and like you know you are the wind beneath my wings <laughs> Well, as thing goes, mate, it's been an interesting conversation. I'm looking forward to next week if we can uh, share it with some folks and um, see what we come back with. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to hang out on my own now. Um, <laughs> just going to sit and cry. Uh, I've allocated some time for it. Um, and in the afternoon, I've lined up another meeting with myself um, where I'll also <laughs> Me and myself feel and like I. I exist on my own. And then to make things worse, I'm going to go meet with my bookkeeper. <laughs> Wish I was lonely. <laughs> Sorry, bookkeeper. All right, mate. See you later. Yeah, have a good one, mate. Talk to you next week. All right. See ya. You've been listening to Risking Failure. To join the community and access more free content, news, and updates, subscribe at riskingfailure.com. <laughs>